Jacobin Show. I'm Jen Pan here with Paul Prescott. Paul, what are we getting up to today? Uh, all things academia. You know, it's my, <laughs> this my is, favorite thing to talk about. There's a lot, yeah. lot going on. So looking forward this to is, that. This is going to be a pretty academic episode. Uh, we're having on Nivedita Majumdar, who is a professor at John Jay College at CUNY. Um, her new book is out from Verso. It's called A World in a Grain of Sand. Postcolonial Literature and Radical Universalism, a bit of a mouthful, but I promise it has implications for kind of the broader left. Um, I think one of the things that I'm very excited to ask Nevedita about is the relationship between uh, certain trends that rise in the academy and the types of politics that we on the left uh, find ourselves kind of enmeshed in. Um, so definitely stay tuned for that. Uh, Nevedita will be on a little bit later. I think that's going to be a great conversation. Um, for now, uh, I wanted to... So so one of the things we're going to talk to Nevedita about, again, is kind of this idea of cultural essentialism, right? Um, and how it sort of appears in post-colonial theory, um, how it appears uh, in, in various forms on the left. Um, and I think that uh, one interesting example that I've seen a lot recently is a document called White Supremacy Culture. Uh, this is uh, from the workbook or from like a diversity training book called Dismantling Racism, a workbook for social change groups by two diversity trainers, Kenneth Jones and Tima Okun. And the reason I'm bringing this this uh, text up is because it's really been everywhere since the racial reckoning began in 2020, right? Um, and, and I want to say for my own, you know, for my own background, I was actually first exposed to this text a few years ago uh, when I was working at a progressive nonprofit. And at the time, uh, I was like, this is one of the worst things I've ever read. Like, it's truly an awful text. But and, and I complained to friends about it afterwards, uh, you know, after I was sort of exposed to it at work. But I also thought at the time, well, this is just a niche professional activist thing. Like, don't like don't get all worked out. It's it's you know, no, nobody takes this stuff seriously. OK, so fast forward to 2020. Like I said, this text is appearing everywhere. Um, and, and I'll get into some of the places where I think it's been sort of most prevalent in a little bit. Uh, but first, I want to read just the opening paragraph from this text, which kind of lays out what, they, what it is that these two authors are trying to do. So they write, this is a list of characteristics of white supremacy culture that show up in our organizations. Culture is powerful precisely because it is so present and at the same time, so very difficult to name or identify. The characteristics listed below are damaging because they are used as norms and standards without being proactively named or chosen by the group. They are damaging because they promote white supremacy thinking. So I think it's now worth going through a few of those characteristics. And then, Paul, I definitely want to get your take on some of them. Um, but but here's the list of white supremacy uh, culture characteristics. So it includes things like perfectionism, a sense of urgency, worship of the written word. Uh, we see here power hoarding, uh, objectivity, uh, right to comfort. Um, and, you know, I think because this text is now so widespread, it has come under fire. Um, I think, you know, from a lot of conservatives and people on the right, to be honest, who really take issue with the idea that, say, perfectionism is a trait of whiteness, right? Um, and, you know, if you are to read 
the document white supremacy culture in like total bad faith. It does seem like they're arguing at times that like perfectionism is a trait of whiteness or like writing is like something that like, you know, white people do. I mean, that's if you really, if you really want to, um, I don't know, like take the text at its absolute worst. And I have some additional comments to make about some of the characteristics that appear. But Paul, first, I want to get your opinion on uh, some, some, some of these characteristics. And I also want to ask you if you, a teacher, have encountered this text or, you know, as, as a labor organizer, whether you've encountered this text. Because like I'm saying, I, I, it really is everywhere these days. Yeah, well, where to start? Um, you know, and I know we're going to watch a clip soon where I'll have more thoughts, but I mean, one thing I immediately thought, I mean, with some of these characteristics, it's hard for me to believe they did not exist among societies that before white European context. So are you telling me that power hoarding in any sort of form did not exist in um, early African societies? And I think, Defensiveness. Right. Or, I mean, then there's a line in there, quant- quantity over quality. And we'll get into the thing about math and science. But what about, you know, when the Islamic world was far ahead of Europe in, ter- in terms of math and science? You know, so it it's just it's a little hard to, to swallow like that. And even, you know, I, I've encountered this more in the sense of within left organizations, not really as a teacher yet. I'm, that's probably coming not more and more. Yet. Yeah. Um, but again, also, I mean, it's, it, it gets, I think, a little bit absurd when you think about it, because, you know, I, I think about, you know, what about the great um, independence, anti-colonial movements throughout Africa in the 20th century. I mean, you think the uh, African National Congress in South Africa, I think they operated with a sense of urgency. Probably, yeah, <laughs> I was going to say. All the time. Um, mm-hmm. And there's stuff in there about, you know, numbers. I mean, what about you need to count votes? I mean, to, to win an election. You know, it. and again, maybe some people say I'm reading that in very bad faith, but it just seems very strange to put say that is a, a, a feature of white culture, um, some mm-hmm. of these things listed, you mm-hmm. know. So I I, I want to kind of play uh, Angel's Advocate, I guess, mm. and read this document in like perfectly good faith, right? Uh, if we go back to the document and look at some of the characteristics, like, again, perfectionism or a sense of urgency, like, Let's say let's say that too much of these traits actually do make a workplace a little bit worse off. Like let's look at this document as just a workplace training text and admit that, you know, if there's too much defensiveness or like either or thinking or like whatever any number of characteristics on this chart, it could actually make somewhere a less pleasant place to work. I'm willing to give them that. Um however, at the same time, I suppose I would argue that these are still not necessarily traits of whiteness, right? Like if your boss is engaging in, you know, a sense of urgency that is counterproductive by which, I mean, we in, you know, the labor organizing world, you may call that a speed up. Uh, <laughs> that is something that is a function of the relationship between the employer and the employee that has nothing to do with whiteness. And I don't see how it's strategic or useful to say that that's a trait of whiteness. Um, and then if we look at something like worship of the written word, um, I, I mean, I, that's always my favorite one because, you know, in at the very like worst faith end of the spectrum, that's kind of like suggesting that non-white people are worse at writing than their white counterparts, which is just racist. Um, <laughs> But I think, you know, even if we if we look at worship of the written word as like a quality of a workplace that can be kind of toxic, like 
okay, I can see that there's something there. Like, you need to have everything in a memo. If you didn't write it down, like, it doesn't exist. I think these are the examples that the authors give in in their workbook. Right. Um, and uh, again, okay, like, I can see how, you know, that might be a little annoying or whatever. But I also want to point out that when you are an employee in a workplace, um, writing things down is actually really good for you if you have to perhaps later document sexual harassment, uh, file a you know union grievance uh if you have to if you're going to sue for discrimination later i mean writing things down is actually a uh uh, is something that you really should be doing for yourself as a worker, especially if you're up against management in any kind of uh combative or um i guess uh uh what's the word like just just if you're having an issue with management, right. right? So so again, I think that these suggestions at best maybe describe some sort of annoying ticks of like less good workplaces, uh, but they're still they, they still have nothing to do with white supremacy. Um, and then at worst, I think that they go so far as calling things that could be beneficial to workers, such as the written word, white supremacy, which again is totally counterproductive. So and and you know and. To be fair, I have not read this whole text, but um, I mean, I would imagine people, if they were trying to defend it, would try to posit this as being in line with some, again, some sort of Mm pre-European African culture. And I mean, there's many problems with that. I mean, okay, if you're talking about the written word, yes, we know oral history has been and still is a big part of uh, cultures in different parts of Africa, different parts of the world. But, you know, first of all, I think we can know and acknowledge that... um, Again, even before European contact, Africa, large continent, many different cultures that we can't generalize. But even, you know, we we know that, for example, like the empire, some of the empires in West Africa, like Ghana, were, uh, you know, engaged in some form of conquering. Maybe we wouldn't call it imperialism or colonialism in that sense, but they were involved in wealth uh, gathering and, and, and power grabbing in, in their different ways. Again, it's a different character than imperialism, but... Um, again, the, it, it I just, just want to say, sorry, I just want to interrupt you to say that wealth gathering, I think, is going to be the next euphemism for capitalism. Yeah, I, it's funny. I don't know why <laughs> I uh, said that. It's almost like I'm like capitalism's PR person all of a sudden. <laughs> right. um, yeah. A, a new career change for Paul. It's like, it's like hunting and gathering. Uh, Wealthing yeah. and gathering. Um, anyway, you guys heard it here first on the Jacobin Show. Keep an ear out for wealth gathering. Right. It's funny. I, I'm going to look out for that now in the New York Times. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but anyway, again, it, it just it really does, doesn't doesn't hold up to like real historical analysis. And mm-hmm. and again, and some things for just generally, especially in like a left, if it's supposed to be for a left organization or social justice organization. I mean, the big one, I mean, sense of urgency. I mean, that's to me, very key in campaigns. Mm-hmm. I mean, and it should be key, I think, in the world generally right now when you're thinking about mm-hmm. issues like climate change. So that that one just strikes me as a little strange um, in general. I would personally like more urgency around the topic of Medicare for all. Right. Um, so, yeah. I, um, yeah. So, so I guess I want to I want to add here. Why are we even talking about this text? Like, we obviously hate it. And I think... 
So like I was saying before, this text is completely widespread now, and like that really troubles me. Um, Matt Iglesias, who of course is, I think he used to work for Vox, uh, he's a freelance journalist now, uh, he wrote a, a great article in his newsletter about kind of the spread of white supremacy culture, the text. Um, he has a pretty funny list of all of the places that he found that uh, use the text white supremacy culture, so I'm going to quickly read that. They include the National Resource Center on Domestic Violence to the Sierra Club of Wisconsin Wisconsin, to an, to an organization of West Coast Quakers, to the Minnesota Public Health Association, to an open source software group, to the Los Angeles chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America, the Atlanta Roller Derby, and the Society of Conservation Biologists. Um, and that's, of course, just a handful of organizations that use the text. And I think, you know, that's that's all true. I mean, he like did the research and found them. Um, but I think what's actually more troubling than these kind of like one off groups is the fact that a lot of public school uh, departments of education and, you know, schools themselves and universities have adopted this text. So um, I think probably one of the most famous examples of uh, the New York City Department of Education under the last chancellor, Richard Carranza, in 2019, adopted white supremacy culture as part of its training materials. They were actually sued by four teachers who were, who, you know, took issue with some of the uh, kind of uh, claims that are being put forward in the text. Um, but I think, you know, in the last year, as I've been saying, um, we've also seen schools, uh, school districts in Oregon and California kind of taking up this text. Um, and I think uh, I, I actually want to show a clip from an Oregon channel uh, because this school district, uh, I guess, decided to take up a program called Equitable Math, which draws very heavily from uh, the tax white supremacy culture. Um, so let's take a look at uh, this video. Is your child learning a math curriculum steeped in racism? That can be a confusing question for some who wonder how in the world math instruction could be racist. K2's Lincoln Graves live in the newsroom with that story. And Lincoln, Oregon has been in the headlines recently when it comes to this topic. Steve and Deb, the Oregon Department of Education recently promoted a micro course offered by an outside party that teachers could voluntarily take called a pathway to equitable math instruction. It's a process that has plenty of support, but critics wonder how a topic like math could be racist or rooted in white supremacy. It's called a pathway to equitable math instruction, and its methods seek to dismantle racism in the way math is taught. I will admit, though, I mean, to the to the naked eye, the the proposal is is pretty bold. Oregon State Representative Janelle Bynum, a former engineer and self-professed mathlete, generally backs most of the concepts, including focused learning on diverse figures in math history, something she learned in her schooling. From an equity standpoint, I think if someone looked back on it and they were like, oh, that was equity. But other concepts in the instruction are more controversial. Critics like former Oregon GOP party chair Alan Alley have seized on the claim that white supremacy culture can show up when the focus is on getting the right answer or when students are required to show their work. 
So I also want to read just a brief line from the introduction of this equitable math program, um, because it specifically cites the white supremacy culture text that, that we are talking about. Um, so they write, the framework for deconstructing racism in mathematics offers several or offers essential characteristics of anti-racist math educators and critical approaches to dismantling white supremacy in math classrooms by making visible the toxic characteristics of white supremacy culture uh, with respect to math. Uh, so, so what are some of these recommendations? Let's take a look. Uh, I think, let's see, there are, let me pull it up here. Um, there are things like, let's see. So these are some of the characteristics of white supremacy culture in math classrooms. There's a greater focus on getting the right answer than understanding concepts and reasoning. Uh, math is taught in a linear fashion and skills are taught sequentially without consideration of prerequisite knowledge. Uh, students are required to, quote, show their work in standardized prescribed ways. So obviously, you know, here these are um, these are kind of uh, qualities associated with math education that this document has identified as actually being white supremacist. Um, and, uh, oh, my favorite, uh, is, let's see, where is it? They, uh, they write superficial curriculum changes are offered in place of culturally relevant pedagogy and practice. So I now want to share their example of what culturally relevant pedagogy and practice would look like, cause it's kind of amazing. Um, so this is, they say, uh, math educators should incorporate true culturally relevant pedagogy, practice, and curriculum. So the example that they give for this is uh, a teacher could say, what are some of your family traditions that you are proud of? Would you be okay if we brought some of those into the classroom? Or they could do an activity in the classroom where they, quote, use Ankara fabric to teach mathematical concepts such as tessellations, fractions, area, percentages, etc. Um, so I think that this is uh, really amazing. Um, I It's hilarious. And it reminds me a lot, actually, of the kind of... Um, I mean, it's so surprising to me that this is new, right? Because it reminds me a lot of the kind of stumbling cultural sensitivity that like we were all exposed to in the 90s. Like, I kind yeah. of feel like this is very reminiscent of like teachers asking me really loudly, like, what does your family eat at home? Or like, right. what if, customs do if you If anyone like? is, I don't know, Jen, if you've watched uh, the Boondocks um, ever, but <laughs> the, uh, I mean, one of my favorite uh, moments was you have this white substitute teacher teaching this all black class and he just starts screaming Harambe over and over and he's trying to get all the kids to stay with him. Yeah, um, so that yeah. is also in this document. Right. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I mean, essentially, right? Um, I mean, this is this is crazy. This is ridiculous. And um, I, you know, when I was browsing the Equitable Math website, I came across their frequently asked questions page, uh, which I also I also want to dip into because uh, they they you know a lot of their frequently asked questions are like, hey, like what's going on here? Is this actually racist? And I think that's a really good sign, right? When you have to have a dedicated section on your website to refuting claims of racism. Right. Um, but anyway, one of the questions asks, is this toolkit suggesting different and or lower standards for black and Latinx students? And uh, they write, not at all. To the contrary, the toolkit upholds the principle that access to high quality and standards aligned curriculum and instruction should be universal for all students and understands that this is currently not the case. We are asking teachers to expand their teaching approaches to the benefit of all students. The toolkit provides guidance and resources for educators to reflect on and implement culturally responsive and student-centered instructional practices in order to ensure equitable access to grade level standards. Um, and to me, that just seems like a very convoluted way of saying, yes, we do want to implement different standards. I mean, that's literally what this 
curriculum or program is about imposing different slash new slash more culturally sensitive or whatever standards. And, you know, I think that we've said many times on the show when we criticize stuff like this, like I'm sure they're coming from a good place or like they probably have good intentions, but I just don't think that this is the way to go about it. I think that uh, we have an obligation to criticize it from the left. And uh, finally, Paul, this is the moment you're waiting for. I want to run a clip from an unrelated, but I think uh, sort of operating in a similar vein, a panel discussion called, let's see, what is this? The Science of Black Teaching. This features a professor at Columbia University's Teachers College. Um, and let's, let's take a look at the type of rhetoric uh, that was on this panel. And I think Black people, we are relational people. Mm-hmm. We are people of context. Like it's very Western and European to to dissect and analyze and take apart things, whereas mm. Afrocentric schooling or Afrocentric spirituality or African epistemology or ways of knowing, everything is connected. So this is why education is not working for so many students of color because we are context-driven people. We can't tell a story without telling the 10 things that happened that led up to that moment. There's no such thing as like thinking isolation, isolating yourself from nature, from your family. Like it's just not part of our uh, ways of knowing and being in the world. So when we tap into the ways that we understand the world, students are able to make wonderful connections and unleash their brilliance and their wisdom. So, Paul, as a member of the uh, relational race, uh, your thoughts on this type of pedagogy? Well, let me let me first. I'll back up a little bit and be fair. You know, just go going back to what we're talking about with math. I mean, one way where this has come up, where I can, I'll I'll say it might make sense a little bit. This has come up in the framework of standardized tests, which in general are just bad. But um, there has been a little bit of talk about this with some of the word problems. And I can see where people are coming from where they'll have these confusing word problems. And some of the cultural references are sometimes it is things that literally maybe if you're growing up in North Philly, you've like haven't heard of or understood it. There is kind of sometimes maybe like they'll reference things that are like generally maybe from someone in a middle class suburb. So there's talk of like changing that I'll, I'll I think I'll give some credit there and i could say like you know that that's fine is that the biggest problem we're facing education i don't think so but okay yeah i mean but i mean with that clip i mean when i saw that i just thought about like what what do we if we take that to be true about you know black people we don't dissect and analyze things we can't we don't think abstractly at all like what do we make of people like wb du bois or mm-hmm. or maybe more a better question what what would someone like him make of this and like you know he was not just a, a great black scholar, but probably one of the greatest intellectuals this country has ever produced. I mean, a, a master of sociology, if anyone has read the Philadelphia Negro, I mean, that is like incredibly rigorous scholarship and a- analysis and documentation. Of course, there are countless other brilliant black scholars I can name, you know, like, how, how do we explain that? And, you know, of course, education, yes, yeah, should be connected to people's lives and relevant. But it's like, if you want to talk about why is education failing so many black children. I mean, let's just start with the fact that so many black kids are in disproportionately, you know, terribly underfunded schools. I, I talk about it probably almost every show about the conditions, about, you know, overcrowded classrooms, buildings falling apart. Um, you know, somehow it's just not surprising that 
upper middle class black children are faring better in the education system. You know, it's working better for them because the conditions are better. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm missing something, but any way you slice this, this is just coming off as extremely patronizing and just mm-hmm. historically inaccurate. And um, yeah, I, I just don't don't know what to make of this, really. I think that to me, and, and I mentioned this sort of briefly before, like something that's really troubling to me is it seems to be almost exclusively people on the right who are criticizing this type of rhetoric now, right? I mean, we touched on this on an earlier show with some of the like ongoing scandal around like critical race theory or what they believe to be critical race theory. Um, and, you know, I think that brings up a, a, a pretty important point, which is why are you and I talking about this? Um, like I said, I think it's really important for the left to confront this kind of rhetoric head on and to challenge it. Um, I don't like that, you know, because we don't want to seem like we're parroting right-wing rhetoric or whatever, that we just leave this open. Um, I think that creates a vacuum in which the only people who are criticizing this kind of terrible right. rhetoric ends up being conservatives, um, and the left really has to have an answer. Right. And and I really, I, I really may be missing something. Someone might explain this to me, and like the light bulb will go off. But like it just honestly seems to reproduce the co- colonial narrative. I mean, mm-hmm. the you know. The colonists and the imperialists are the rational ones. The yeah. savages are just can't, could not possibly understand science, cannot mm-hmm. progress, or at least cannot progress without the help of mm-hmm. colonists. Um, mm-hmm. This really just seems to reproduce that dynamic. Um, I agree. And I feel crazy, like, am I the only one that's seen this? I know yeah. you're with me, Jen, so. That's- well, I mean, I guess that, that brings me to, I, or I would be curious, why do you think there is such a silence from the left or like even from liberals and progressives around some of this stuff? I mean, like, like I was saying, you know, earlier, I think at one point it was easy to be like, well, this is just like niche activist stuff. Uh, nobody's really doing this. But we, we just pointed out that public schools are doing this. <laughs> right. You know, I mean, and honestly, this, I think is something I hope I think Nivedita can probably explain more. But I do think there is a dynamic where over the years, things have started in the academy and they kind of filter out through society. And, you know, at one point, it was at least much more common that you would have just standard Marxists in the academy. And I think with the advent of, you know, uh, postmodernism, postcolonialism, poststructuralism, I mean, these ideas have a way of like filtering out and they've just become Mm -hmm. the common sense. And I think... I don't really know. I mean, maybe some on the left feel that, you know, they don't feel like they have some sort of framework for understanding racism or colonialism through through Marxism, and they feel they need to latch on to this. But it does, you know, like you said, sorry, my earphone keeps uh, falling out, but um, maybe it, it, it does seem like there's a sense of desperation where it's like people mm-hmm. just Googled this. And like it somehow got big because they're so desperate to not be racist and like they're Mm -hmm. just flailing for an answer here, you know, and I mean, not to get too much on the tangent, I do think it relates to like what this whole show is about. I mean, Mm -hmm. to go to another great scholar, CLR James, who it's kind of interesting because Hyper and he, for those that that know, a great scholar from Trinidad wrote a lot about colonialism. It's kind of interesting because hyper woke people try to claim him in a way. But he was, you know, I don't, I don't agree with all of his work, but he was not very woke. And he was very insistent throughout, you know, he was known for talking about colonialism. He was deeply involved with people like Kwame Nkrumah and other anti-colonial leaders. He was very insistent that he was not anti-Western culture. 
-hmm. was very insistent that, you know, people in the colonial world have adopted different aspects of Western culture, you know, and his great work, The Black Jacobins, about the Haitian slave revolt. I mean, one of the Mm -hmm. profound points he's making is that the slaves in Haiti adopted modern forms of organization and adopted principles of the enlightenment that they used in their context. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, that's a great book. Everyone should read. Um, But, you know, that was the point he made. And I think that was a really great framework to look at it. That is not this sort of weird rejection of everything, uh, you know, right. That is supposed to be coded Western. Yeah. Right. You know? Um, So I think that's a much more healthier framework, but honestly, I mean, I'm going to sound like an old grumpy old teacher, but I think a lot of people also just don't read. So again, there's many people Mm. that I'm sure think that CLR James is in line with this stuff that we're talking about, you know, Mm -hmm. the stuff that we disagree with. They don't actually know that he's not because they probably just haven't bothered to read it. Mm -hmm. I guess. So, so before we bring Nevada on, um, I, I just want to touch on one last thing, which is, do you think the right is better at talking to workers at this point than the left. Um, I, I, I mean, that, you know, we've talked about right-wing populism on this show before. That's like kind of a constant fear, right? That like the right is going to somehow outflank the left on uh, issues, on, on uh, you know, issues that it, like bread and butter workers issues, right? Um, I, I have mixed feelings. I'm not sure, um, but but I want to get your thoughts first and then I'll, I'll jump in. Yeah, I, I mean, I think they're... They're better at talking about it in negative ways. So, mm-hmm. you know, they don't have positive programs, but again, they're good at, at latching on to something outrageous and being like, right. isn't that crazy? And most regular working people will be like, yeah, that is crazy. Um, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> or, you know, I think even stuff like family, family values, like, you know, they're tapping into like, yeah, people want to take care of their family. Mm-hmm. A lot of people think family is important. Um, right. So or Eric Foner yeah. points out that the word freedom was something that the right, right like it has absolutely kind of like commandeered as their own. Uh, but Foner's argument is that the left, like on the left, like we should take that back because that's something that, you know, I mean, that ha- like the idea of freedom, of course, has a very long tradition on the left. Um, and it's very appealing to a large number of people. Right. And, you know, and not just freedom in the sense of civil liberties, which of mm-hmm. course are important, but like, you know, really highlighting that, like, our workplaces are just like total dictatorships, you know, yep. for the, you know, and somehow mm-hmm. we just kind of accept for the most part, like once I clock in, like basically a lot of my rights are given up until I'm, I'm gone. And I think tapping into the, you know, the workplace should be a site of freedom as well. Right. Um, so, or even this idea of economic freedom, like why does right. that have to be synonymous with uh, like unfettered capitalism, right? Like ep- economic freedom. I mean, we should make it mean the freedom to, uh, you know, access a living wage, the freedom not just right. to sell your labor, but the freedom to, uh, you know, enjoy a dignified living. Right. And and you know, that kind of reminds me, I recently wrote an article about in Montana, the labor movement there beat back a right to work bill. And mm-hmm. one of the unions, forget which, I think it was one of the building trades, the guy said, like, you know, most of my members are Republicans, but like the way we framed it was like, you know, the union gives me freedom. I have the Mm -hmm. freedom, you know, I can work one job, the freedom to take care of my family without relying on anything else. Mm -hmm. So, I, you know, and that worked, you know, again, these were people that identified as right wing, but they were mobilizing against a right to work bill and Mm -hmm. using the freedom framework to to do that. Right. All right. Well, on that note, uh, should we go ahead and bring out Nevada for for the talk? 
Uh, so we are now joined by Nevada Majumdar, an associate professor of English at John Jay College at CUNY. Her latest book is out now from Verso. It's The World in a Grain of Sand, Postcolonial Literature and Radical Universalism. And she also has two essays, uh, two recent essays in Catalyst Journal, uh, which includes Silencing the Subaltern and Labor, Love and Capital. Uh, so Nevada, welcome to The Jacobin Show. Thank you. So I guess just to, just to begin, uh, for people, your book is about post-colonial literature, um, and, and more broadly, you have a critique of post-colonial theory. So I think I want to start just by asking, for people who are unfamiliar with post-colonial theory, um, can you briefly explain kind of when and how this discipline arose in academia and what its main contributions have been? Uh, sure. And um, I was listening to you guys all this time, and I think uh, you're doing an excellent job of, uh, you know, where the theory has gone to. Um, so in terms of emergence, I think, uh, you know, even though it emerges um, in a definitive way in the 80s, um, the, the genealogy of postcolonial theory, I, I would say, goes back to the 60s. And um, when we think of the 60s, you know, we're talking about broad social movements along um, uh, race, gender, anti-war, the Cuban revolution, the anti-war movements. So it's a very progressive milieu. Um, and at the same time, um, along with these, you know, these sort of uh, broad social movements, what we had was um, a vast expansion of the U.S. universities. Um, it was you know, for the first time, it was not just an elite enclave, but for people, it, it massively uh, increased in size and it became a credible social ladder. So between the social movements and uh, and the expansion of the universities, there was a very strong push for a democratization of curriculum and the way, um, you know, uh, curriculum was taught. Um, so this, you know... Th- this was very important. But on the other hand, there was also a contradictory pull, um, which is that this is also a time when there was an acceptance of the loss of the of a broad socialist vision, um, because it was the time also of um, deregulation, of, of free trade, of decimation of unions. So there is a contradictory pull. And um, if you think about it, the new left, uh, it sort of enca- uh, encapsulates this pull in both directions. So it's on the one hand very radical. On the other hand, it is a ki- the kind of radicalism that's not very threatening. And postcolonialism, um, when it emerges in the 80s, is you know it emerges from the broad umbrella of the of the of the new left, and it similarly sort of captures this this contradiction. Um, I want to say that it was you know. It, it was very much influenced by certain sort of broader things that's going on, that was going on, which is the decolonization of Africa, a very strong ethos of third worldism, um, the affiliation, a strong affiliation of the communist movement with the South. Um, so all of this helps to, uh, you know, to talk about anti-colonialism in a, in a very strong way. And post-colonial theory draws on all of that but then it makes the, a very vital move of not, not uh, you know, it does not introduce studying colonialism 
in addition to what Marxism had brought to the table, but instead of. So it tries to displace mm. our class with the study of colonialism. So um, so that's, you know, th- that is in, in some ways the main sort of assumption of post-colonial theory that, um, that it, it, it wants to displace class analysis with anti-colonialism. It is not this and that but uh, and again they will never quite clearly come out and say that but that is what is underlying um you know the underlying assumption of post-colonial theory yeah i was gonna say i think that uh several uh if if not many of the leading post-colonial theorists actually do themselves identify as marxists right Um, absolutely but yeah. I, so I guess I then want to follow up by, um, you, you are starting to touch on this a little bit, but what are some of the real limitations of post-colonial theory as an academic discipline? And then by extension, um, as a political framework for the left, because I think something you look at, uh, in your work is kind of the relationship between the trends that are coming out of the academy, right. And, and the left, mm-hmm. as, as we had mentioned before. So, um, you know, first of all, I, I, I do want to say uh, before going into the limitations and I, you know, assume that we will be doing um, that quite a bit here, but I do want to say that post-colonial theory with all its problems did make a very salient contribution. Mm-hmm. It completely changed the nature of literature departments and, uh, you know, which were completely a haven of the, you know, the Western canon. It, it, transformed that and it was a very hard fought battle and I think that is something that does need to be recognized Uh, but not only brought in non-western literature but also changed in the way this literature uh, has been taught and will be and is you know continues to be taught so in in that sense it is a huge contribution Um, so in terms of Limitations, see, the limitations are both, there are limitations, uh, theoretical, academic limitations, and then, of course, political limitations. Um, In my book, I talk within my discipline what the, you know, what the limitations are in terms of literary analysis. And let's keep in mind that post-colonial theory, as broad as it is today in terms of its influence, um, was born within literature departments. So to me, that was, you know, that's very interesting that Mm -hmm. they what what we see is that there is a remarkable failure by post-colonial theory in reading post-colonial literature. That's the argument that I'm making, that the theory fails um, in reading post-colonial literature itself. Um, and, you know, I don't know. I mean, I don't want to go into, you know, too much details, but um, the, the primary thing I think what it misses out on because uh, as you know as you all were discussing earlier because it the, the analysis it's such a, a fundamentally a culturalist analysis based on difference what it misses out on is postcolonial literature much like any literature is extremely of course extremely anchored in culture in context how could it be otherwise but it also transcends that and, you know, is able to speak to other cultures and other times. And that's why it becomes relatable. And that aspect is completely missed out by post-colonial theorists. And, you know, that is that's that's a real problem. And um, you know, I could go more into detail in terms of certain authors. But keeping that aside um, for now, um, do we want to talk about the political limitations or? Yeah, yeah. 
Um, again, <laughs> you were doing such a good job, so I don't know, you know, where to begin. But I, I, I think in in some fundamental way, what um, where the theory becomes problematic is that it it sees um, politics primarily based in culture rather than in interests. Mm-hmm. And culture is then what leads to its sort of particularism, right? As opposed to interests, which would be universal because human beings have the same interests. They do not like to be oppressed. They, they fight against, uh, you know, against, against uh, their freedom being taken away or again, be they economic freedom or political freedom. We see it time and again. And, you know, those are our material interests, the need, the, the fight against material deprivation. These are universal sort of um, issues which are so basic and fundamental on the other hand. But with this, with a stroke of a hand, when you bring in culturalism, all that becomes obscure. So that I think is is you know is um, a real issue um, with postcolonial theory. But what is interesting is because the theory is primarily concerned with the global South, it keeps its radical veneer, mm-hmm. right? Um, the the radical pretense of of addressing something which it claims where all other theories have failed, um, both in terms of the global south and in general in terms of representing what it calls the subaltern or the oppressed. Now, which is, of course, absolutely untrue. I mean, Marxism has always spoken for the global south in terms of, you know, colonialism, empire, imperialism. All these issues have been very, very central in the works of key Marxist theorists, from Marx himself to mm-hmm. Lenin to to uh, to Rosa Luxemburg to Bever to so many Marxist theories, the dependency theories. Um, you know, one can have issues with them, but they were all trying to understand the global South. So to say that Marxism missed the boat is just not true. Um, and in terms of impact. It has had huge impact all over the South, right? I mean, I grew up in India. Marxism was huge, mm-hmm. um, but in, you know, much more so in some other countries, in the in, in South Africa, in the movement in South Africa, you know, earlier than that in Algeria, all over Latin America, China, of course. So all over the world, I mean, outside the West, it's been the single most important uh, uh, theory, which Marxism, which has had the, uh, to, to have had that kind of impact. So it's a very problematic, um, uh, to to put it mildly, premise on which postcolonial theory erects its you know entire edifice. Mm-hmm. So I actually want to uh, jump back now to talk a little bit about the literary qualities of some of the postcolonial theorists, um, because a lot of the postcolonial theorists, and I think you know Homi Baba and Gayatri Spivak in particular, have come mm-hmm. under fire or, or constantly come under fire, right, for writing in a very kind of dense, jargon-heavy, uh, some people say obscurantist manner. Um, and I actually want to read just a few lines from Gayatri Spivak's famous text, "Can the Subaltern Speak?" Uh, just you know, in case. People want a taste of it. So she writes, In subaltern studies, because of the violence of imperialist, epistemic, social, and disciplinary inscription, a project understood in essentialist terms must traffic in a radical textual practice of differences. The object of the group's investigation, in the case not even of the people as such, but of the floating buffer zone of the regional elite subaltern, is a deviation from an ideal, the people or subaltern, which is itself defined as a difference from the elite. 
Um, so this is pretty dense. Um, and, you know, I, as you mentioned, Spivak has a background in literary theory and deconstruction. She's clearly not the only person in these, you know, fields writing this way. Um, and, and actually, I want to say for the record, you know, I studied English in, uh, in college. And when I came across Can the Subaltern Speak for the first time, I actually kind of enjoyed, like, sort of looking at her, like, crazy language and trying to, like, pull it apart and, and figure out what it meant. So mm-hmm. I don't, I'm not saying we should, you know, dismiss the text like out of hand just for being dense and jargon heavy. But you are also in the English department and you don't write this way. Your book doesn't read like this. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about what you see the purpose or function of this type of language being. Um, Why do the post-colonial theorists write like this? Great question, Jen. (laughs) Way out of my depth. I'm wondering about this. I mean, indeed. I mean, you know, as, as we all know, when... When you have something to say, right? When you when you have a good thought, an idea, a theory, you want people to understand it. You want to communicate. You want people to be on the same page. You want to persuade people. So why write in a way which actually puts people off? I it's it's a real puzzle. Um, you know, some of the things that I'll say there, I don't think it's rocket science, is part of it is that, you know, it, uh, it's heavily influenced by continental philosophy, which tends to be jargonistic. So some of it is just that jargon. But I think there is, and, you know, I'll go out on a limb, I think there is a deeper reason here. Um, much of post-colonial theory, when you, you know, when you get into it, there isn't that much going on there. There isn't that much that is being said. I mean, you know, I, like you, I've struggled with Spivak and I will read a paragraph and reread it. And I'm like, okay, so all you are saying is something like, I don't know, marginalized women do not get much of a hearing. Like, why not say that? And then I realized that that's exactly it. Mm -hmm. If she says just that, then where is the novelty? I think it's a search for novelty. They hide behind language to pretend like they're, that they're saying something which has not been said. And I think it, you know, it does immense harm. I mean, I've seen in graduate departments where people think that something is wrong with them, that they're not understanding it. Of course, it is smart. Of course, if they, you know, there's nothing wrong with Baba. It has to be me. I mean, No, if you're a reasonably intelligent person and you want to learn and you cannot understand, you are so not the problem. So, yeah, don't get me stuck. I feel (laughs) I feel so seen right now. Um, (laughs) um, So, you know, in your book, you focus a lot mostly on on postcolonial literature, but you kind of more in general challenge the binary between the universal and the particular through what you call radical universalism. So can you explain uh, what is radical universalism and how do you think this can help the left think through politics today? Right. Okay. Um, so, you know, speaking of the book, um, the the phrase radical universalism, if I may, um, you know, where it comes from, actually, um, the, the idea came to me many years back when I was reading Frederick Jameson's what is an iconic essay on third world literature, where he says uh, all third world literature should be read as national allegory. Uh, and it became very infamous. There's like a huge debate on it. It's been going on and, you know, I address it in my book. But at the heart of it, what, you know, Jameson, who's a Marxist critic, 
what he is saying is um, it is vitally important for first world scholars to um, to not read third world literature as an extension of the kind of literature that 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 that, that the West has always known, but to understand where it is different. Again, the the theme of difference. So you know, it's. He comes from not a bad place, I will say that. Um, but then he says, well, what are my options here? I understand that if I read it as difference, and Jameson is a very smart guy, so he sees that once you start reading it as difference, it brings in the whole baggage of you know reading a whole part of the world as Orientalist. And he says as much that it runs that risk. But again, he says it's worth the risk because if we do not do that, then we are left with, and I do not remember the exact quote, but something like a general and lib- uh, a generalized liberal humanism. Um, and when I read that, you know, it stopped me in my tracks. I'm like, why would a Marxist think that those are the only options, right? That either we do not appreciate the the, the rootedness of of um, of other cultures. Or we have to brush them, you know, uh, in the in the as in the same way, in the same colors as as the way we have always understood Western literature. Why can't we do? Uh, why can't we understand literature as it is? That of course it is anchored in culture. Of course it is rooted in culture. But it is doing much more than that. And especially as a Marxist, how, how do you not get that right? So that's where you know the the, the phrase of radical universalism because, okay, what I forgot to say is um, Jameson says we need to appreciate the radical difference of the of the third world. So it is an opposition to that, that, you know, that I thought radical universalism is what something that we can work with. Um, and what is radical about the universalism? It's true with something that postcolonial theorists have pointed out that universalism has been employed, um, you know, in in ways, in very oppressive ways, in um, especially in the context of colonialism. But there are other ways in which universalism can and will always be used for the purposes of emancipation and liberation, and that's where that's why I call it um, radical universalism. Um, I forget, Paul. What was the second part of your question? So how do you think this concept can really help the left today in uh, thinking through politics? Right. I mean, I think what it can do is, you know, what what you were, were talking about earlier, that this kind of pervasive sort of culturalism, which is the other side of the coin, really, of racism, um, that it, it gives us the tool to to fight that. Um, because once we understand that, you know, people's, um, that, that politics should be rooted in, in people's interests rather than culture, which is not to say that culture does not matter. Of course it matters. Of course you take it into account. But it's a question of what you grant primacy to. So, um, um, you know, if we might talk about the Bernie campaign, I think that's, you know, that's where a lot of it came into play, um, where um, the, we heard the, this idea of socialism as a, as a white concept, right? And the the problem, of course, with all of that is, 
is manifold. First of all, it's just false that socialism um, being a Western concept, you know, I just talked about how it has had this huge influence all over the global South. And Paul, as you were saying, all these, you know, non-Western theorists, you know, Fanon, CLR, James uh, Cabral, Guevara, Emin Roy, my favorite, you know, somebody who founded two communist parties. So the idea that, um, th- that, that, socialism is a Western concept is just um, factually wrong, right? Um, Then we come to the whole idea of politics. And um, I think, you know, again, you were grappling with it and you've been grappling with it, you know, I know for a while. Um, But in the Bernie campaigns, some of these things became kind of concrete where the idea was floated that universal programs do not help racial or you know other minorities, right? Programs like Medicare for all or a free college or minimum wage, whatever uh, what you have, because the argument being that even if you get those things, minorities will not fully benefit from that, right? That broadly that that, that was the uh, that's the charge, and I think. As, as socialists, we have to say it's true. First of all, we need to acknowledge that it's true that if you have universal programs, it will not do away with racism tomorrow. That is absolutely true. So if you have something like um, universal care, as you have in Europe, will there be, uh, uh, you know, will it be differentially implemented? There will be some of that. No question about it. And we have to fight that. But will it be a darn sight better than what we have now? That is the question, right? Same then goes for, say, uh, you know, um, free college, that free college, you know, so what if, for instance, you know, blacks have um, uh, degrees, graduate degrees, because there is an earning gap, even even amongst, you know, people who are um, who have bachelor's degree? That's a that's an argument that's often, um, you know, that, that's put forth. Um, but if you look a little deeper into it, and I've spoken earlier about this, yes, there is a gap, but the gap goes uh, becomes narrower as, as as you climb the ladder of academic degrees. So there is a bigger gap with high school degree. The gap is much smaller when you have a bachelor's degree, and almost vanishes when you have a graduate degree. And the reason there are fewer, you know, graduate minority graduates as opposed to whites is because it's just expensive. So, of course, you know, a free college will help. And, you know, with minimum age, again, the similar argument. So I feel that um, that's where the idea of universalism in concretely, I think we have to hammer this home, that it is it is not just a theoretical argument, but it is not the best way, but the only way in which we can address, you know, people's issues of material deprivation. And you you touched on this already a little bit when you uh, were talking about the expansion of the university. But, you know, it used to be common to find Marxists who advocated for universalism in academia. And those views were not really controversial mm-hmm. on the left. So what kind right. of explains this shift to where right. postmodernism, postcolonialism has been so hegemonic and these ideas now that, you know, were common sense of the left are so rejected? How how did we get to this point where these are the ideas that are hegemonic now? Um, why 
and how post-colonialism became a hegemonic discourse. Yeah. I mean, part of it is like, as I said, you know, because of because of the history. Uh, but you know, there are a few other things. I mean, um, I, I think it is, and I think Jen, maybe uh, you know, you said it at some point. I, I remember you saying it, or maybe it was an email <laughs> um, that it is also a theory that emerges as as a point at a point of defeat. I mean, you know, four decades of unremitting attack on 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 the working class, on unions, and therefore not just the working class, but on our working class power, um, has led to a milieu where it becomes, you know, very very difficult to think of an of an alternative way of doing things. But so, if you want to be radical, but you have given in to the defeat, then it comes in as a very you know useful theory. Um, keep in mind also that you know postcolonial theory, unlike Marxism, has emerged from from academic departments. It emerges from universities, from tenured professors. So there is a very strong class component here, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of you know who stands to benefit from it. So it is it's unthreatening to the to the power structure, but it gives them their radical credential. And I think that's why, you know, that's why it, be- it has become hegemonic in terms of where it is coming from and who it is serving, if that makes sense. Oh, you're on mute, Jen. Sorry. <laughs> I'm always doing that. Um, I, I was just saying, I, I want to kind of zoom out now and just ask you about um, uh, maybe Marxism more broadly, because I think, you know, socialist Marxist or socialist politics, um, you know, on a kind of very broad level, want to sort of explain the laws of motion, right? Like the massive transformations uh, that we see in capitalism that occur across economies and nations. So like very macro level kind of phenomena. But at the same time, we also, when it comes to doing politics, have to operate in very specific and particular situations, such as running a campaign for office or, you know, organizing a workplace even. So how do Marxists or how should socialists balance these two things uh like theory and practice yeah yeah i guess i guess that was a complicated way of yeah yeah no 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 that was no no i think that's that's it's a very good question to which you know uh there is i mean there is no deep answer to that i think you do both by doing both but I, i mean i would just step back and just say that um you know marxist theory is uh, a, a lot of the theory is pitched at a very high level of abstraction, for sure, as most theory is. Mm-hmm. But it also, sh- you know, it's derived from what is happening at a very local level. It's not academic in that sense, right? It is derived from what is happening at the shop floor. And, and that kind of give and take is what gives, uh, you know, theory its lifeblood. But it's also something that you know activism need and should be informed by. So, so there, it's it's a two way street, and I mean you know there's a lot to say about this uh, for you know somebody like me who's in a academic union. I mean I, I do think that you can be a great theorist, but that does not necessarily make you uh, you know somebody with leave alone being a good organizer, but somebody who has good political instincts. It, it just does not translate necessarily. Now, you could be both, sure. Um, 
but so so that's something to be remembered but that does not mean that you cannot that you, that, that you have to be an organizer to be a good theorist i don't buy that either you know i'm i'm sure that there are people and there I mean, i would say the majority who are able to theorize very well without being in the trenches um however <laughs> i think the converse is not quite true i think most good organizers are good theorists you know they may not be writing theory they may not be doing theory but you know at the back of their mind they're always generalizing which is what theory is you know so you go you speak to 10 people on the on the shop floor and you learn something something much more general and then you use it moving forward right and that's what makes somebody a good theorist and um i mean in terms of you know how you do both i again i think you know marxist socialists have been doing both for a, for a long time now um think of you know think of unions think of people um campaigning in the day and doing night classes understanding theory at night but also in terms of broader praxis you know in terms of unions um negotiating contracts that are relevant for their workers but through that understanding you know what a class wide campaign would mean mm-hmm. so um so that's you know that that's that's doing both that's mm-hmm. doing what is what is local but what what's also um something much broader and something like that of course gets very complicated when we think of medicare for all where it is not happening very much right in terms because unions are in some ways very much locked into you know the 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 kind of benefits that they have been able to extract of management in terms of healthcare so there is a kind of blindness in terms of how this needs to be pried open and become a class wide movement which is both theoretically sane but also makes complete sense in terms of material interests um so yeah so again you know you do both by doing both <laughs> i don't think i have any more questions at the moment do you you jen um i i think that's actually a great note to end on um but i want to shout out nevedada your book again a world in a grain of sand out now from verso postcolonial literature and radical universalism nevedada thank you so much uh that was a very enlightening conversation we're happy to have you on thank you so much thank you All right. Uh I thought that was a great breakdown of kind of some of the academic uh idiosyncrasies, yeah. shall we say, that we were trying to get at earlier. <laughs> um and and I just want to say for the record, Nevedada's book, uh I mentioned this is not at all like Spivak's writing. Right. So if you're interested <laughs> in these themes, definitely check it out. I mean, the most important achievement of this show is I finally understand what postcolonialism is. Uh <laughs> wasn't very clear coming in, but I think I got a better better understanding. achievement unlocked uh right but something <laughs> well, i let's, do let's... know about <laughs> eh? is over to your wheelhouse now um it's time for labor paul uh of course this is the segment of our show where we take user or sorry user uh viewer <laughs> user you can be our users uh right. viewer questions wealth, from wealth the gatherers, audience uh... yeah hunter <laughs> hunters gatherers <laughs> um Anyway, you ask us or you ask specifically Paul uh any of your labor related questions whether that has to do with union organizing or labor history, go ahead and uh pop them in the chat or leave them in the comments or I think you can tweet at Paul, right? 
Uh, he's yes. on Twitter. Unfortunately, but uh, unfortunately, yes. <laughs> um, but definitely feel free to ask Paul, and he will answer. He will try to answer the question the next time uh, he's on. Um, so today's question has to do with truckers. Uh, a viewer asks Labor Paul, "Is a truckers union a viable option?" So um, actually, there are many truck drivers that are in the Teamsters union. So there are various freight companies that are unionized, and you know the amount of unionized truckers is probably in the hundreds of thousands in this country. Um, so since there are many different com- companies, it's not going to be necessarily one same union for everyone. Uh, I think most of them are in the Teamsters, but you have different locals, different contracts with different companies. But the majority of truckers are not in unions, and pay and working conditions for truckers has been declining for decades. So I want to take time to talk about why that has been happening. And it goes back to the deregulation of the trucking industry, which was signed into law, not by Richard Nixon, not by Ronald Reagan, but good old Jimmy Carter with the Motor Carrier Carrier Act of 1980. I know Jimmy Carter sounds, seems like a nice dude. He builds houses and crap, but he also deregulated the trucking industry. And, you know, I'm going to still quote from Adolph Reed when he said that, um, you know, Jimmy Carter was kind of a warm up act for Reagan. And, you know, when we think about neoliberalism and the conservative reaction to organized labor, we we usually mark uh, 1980 as a turning point, you know, with the election of Reagan, the election of Thatcher in the UK. Um, And that's definitely an important marking point. But really, if you look in the mid and the late 1970s is where you see the beginnings of this neoliberal turn really taking shape. Um, So starting in 1935, the federal government started regulating the trucking industry. So they set the price you know, to move one good from one city to another. Uh, trucking companies had to apply for the right to carry a certain good. And this is also a way of regulating wages to keep them relatively fair. And so many more truckers were unionized throughout this period. And this system kind of came under strain with the economic crisis of the 1970s, where you had inflation, uh, what they called stagflation, the rising price of gas because of the oil shock and things like that. So, you know, in 1980, this Motor Carriers Act, which actually was introduced by Senator Ted Kennedy, um, broke up that system. So allowed anyone to haul any good to any place for any price that they liked. So the goal was to slash the prices of goods for consumers by forcing truckers to compete with one another on the price of transportation. And so in a way, it did slash uh, prices for consumers a little bit, but at the cost of destroying the wages and working conditions of truckers. And so you have a slew of companies that emerged that were under fierce competition. And we all know what happens when profit margins are thin. What do they do first? They cut first from labor. Um, And that's what this competition created. And we can look at the results of this today. So in the late 1970s, the the salaries of truck drivers were 50% higher than they are today, even when you account for inflation. Um, so right now, you know, of the 1.9 million truck drivers, their median salary is around 45000 a year, and nearly 40% of them lack health insurance. Uh, they're also overworked. An OSHA study in 2020 um, found that truckers work a median of 60 hours per week. So the biggest winners in deregulation um, were the big retail chains um, like Walmart that had become really dominant in the shipping market. So their profits continue to climb. Um, and the truckers' wages are stagnant at best. Um, and companies you know, are becoming more and more desperate to find anyone with a pulse that they can put behind a truck as these conditions have worsened. Um, so, yeah, I mean, more truckers should be unionized. 
But we also need action at the federal level to start regulating the industry again. And, you know, at least from what I saw, this wasn't necessarily something Bernie Sanders talked about a lot. Um, But I think it should be on the agenda for left candidates at the congressional level. You know, I think a big part of um, it's not the same thing, but Jeremy Corbyn's campaign in the UK was about re-regulating and re-nationalizing certain industries. Um, So I think that should be part of the conversation today. And, you know, at, at the heart of this, too, is this obsession, um, I mean, this country has of doing anything to lower consumer prices. And we really have to think about, I mean, is it really worth it to maybe lower prices a little bit, but your own wage keeps lowering? I mean, how how much longer is that going to be a benefit, especially when you think about, you know, maybe consumer products are staying cheap, but housing, healthcare, uh, you know, higher education, everything is getting more expensive. Is it really worth it doing things to keep prices low? at the cost of, you know, people's jobs and their livelihoods. Um, so that's, that's all I got. You know, there are truckers and unions, but um, I think there should be more. And I think we've got to tackle the deregulation of the trucking industry. Regulate everything. Yeah. You know, <laughs> um, on the subject of uh, the kind of trade-off between wages and consumer goods, I, I, I don't have an answer for this, but I always wonder if, there really is as big of a trade-off as some people want you to think, right? Because the classic example is like, well, if you know Amazon paid their workers more, you wouldn't be able to get Prime the next day. But maybe you would, but Jeff Bezos would take a pay cut. Or like maybe you would, right. but Amazon's profits would be a little lower. Or maybe they wouldn't, they would have like you know, instead of having like 500 million types of like toothbrush or whatever that you could buy, maybe they'll have a few less or something. I right. don't know. Yeah. I, do, and do that's you have the thing. Yeah. yeah. I mean, because that framework, it's literally based on accepting the premise that the company has to maintain their current level of right. profit. There's just nothing right. we could ever do to stop that. Right. Um, Except shave away from labor. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, but but again, I mean, they could easily raise wages. And again, it might mean uh, Bezos makes like, how, what, 10,000 a minute instead of, um, <laughs> 20,000. 20, yeah. You yeah, know, yeah. Um, and, and also, you know, there's been a lot of, oh, hello, Kale. Hey. Um, Young Kale, do you have something to say about truckers? Oh, well, I was going to say something gonna... about Amazon and, and about, okay. uh, and like the prices. Yeah. I mean, all right. Yeah. Well, cause... I, I was also going to say real quick that like, they've already shown that even raising the minimum wage, for example, has not really raised right, prices. Exactly. It's like, yep. maybe it's raised a Big Mac to be 10 cents more. So I think a lot of that is, is false. Mm-hmm. I think Amazon is, it's, um, it's both a good and a bad example in some ways because it's such a massive company and because people like Bezos make so much money. Um, but it, I think it is still the case that Amazon uh, is still operating under uh, conditions of competition. They, they're, you know, they're doing speed ups. They are forcing their workers to work as hard and as long as possible, and introducing new technology to, um, you know, to increase productivity. Uh, and that's that's not arbitrary. It is still because they are in competition, especially with companies like Walmart. Um, but in other, you know, kind of, they have a certain sector that's really theirs. But uh, they're also competing in other kinds of markets with other capitalists. But point that I'm trying to make really is that um, I think for a lot of this, you know, the, the the more conservative argument of if you raise wages, you know, it's going to redound onto the consumer. Uh, that could happen. Um, and that's why you want to have across the board, across the sector uh, regulation that's put on. So it's not it's not just 
and you know, it's not just attacking this one company. It's mm-hmm. saying every single competitor in this market has to now deal with a new set of rules, basically. Uh, and uh, and and that's kind of part of the trick with any, I think, reform in capitalism is that, insofar as like the motor of this whole thing is competition, you have to do something that doesn't actually end up exacerbating competition in the end by you know now there's just a new front runner in in the race. You have to reduce competition across the board. So what you're saying is regulate everything. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> or uh, there's the the old Jeremy Corbyn meme where like he's he's nationalizing everything and, yeah. and he points at the seagull and, and yells nationalize it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. Um, I okay. So I I have like one sort of follow-up question, I guess, for Labor Paul, uh, uh, following from the kind of trucker's question, which is, what is logistics? Um, we, I think we hear a lot on the left that this is like a strategic sector, and I feel like truckers are included, but what are logistics, and, and is this a st- strategic, uh, I don't even know if sector is the right word, but a strategic right. area to be organizing? Yeah, I mean, logistics is essentially just like the method of moving shit places and people. I mean, uh, I mean, wars, for example, I mean, not to go on a real tangent here, but part of what made World War II very different was like logistics was a a, a huge component of that war in terms of moving people and, and supplies in a whole new way. So, I mean, logistics is really just the process of getting products to a place, whether that's to a warehouse, whether it's to the store. So, yeah, truck drivers, UPS drivers, Amazon drivers. Uh, to less maybe lesser extent FedEx. These are all part of logis- logistics. And I think also people that work in warehouses count as mm-hmm. logistics, even if they're not moving the products. What and about so, like I mean, DoorDash? I think like delivering food is a little, a little different to me. More like service um, industry. But yeah, it, it is yeah. very strategic. I mean, just we could all just imagine, you know, UPS went on strike um, mm-hmm. because it's not just about like me getting my uh, cool shoes that I want, you know, or my Nevada's book, you know, <laughs> that may not bring the economy to the halt. But it's, of course, you know, um, companies that and factories that are making products that need them to be delivered. Mm-hmm. So it is strategic. And, you know, there's been this um, thing. They've been arranging it what's called just-in-time delivery systems mm-hmm. people might know about, where instead of building in time for storage, you know, they're, they're calculating that the product is going to arrive just in time for when it's needed. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when this started back, I think, in the 80s and 90s, a lot of labor activists were thinking, wow, the companies are leaving themselves actually very vulnerable because yeah. one mess up in this chain, even if one sector of workers messes it up, it's going to affect the whole chain. Well, so far, I mean, workers have not necessarily exercise that leverage but it it does remain that that is uh that whole process is actually very vulnerable to workers actions Mm -hmm. is there another reason why logistics is strategic other than kind of just the basic fact that if those workers stop working like everything shuts down i mean that's like nothing to sneeze at of course but um i mean I, i guess i'm just asking because uh like i said it's not really like a sector right like it's very diffuse And I'm not sure if, you know, uh, all of the people who work in this kind of amorphous thing that we're calling logistics think of themselves as being a logistics worker. Like you probably think of yourself as like a truck driver or like an Amazon warehouse worker. Right. Um, So, yeah. So are there other reasons why it's a strategic area to organize? Well, I mean, 
I do think it is one of the, you know, because some of the other so-called strategic sectors, I mean, that could be debated, but I mean, Mm -hmm. that people on the left are talking about stuff like teaching and nursing, Mm -hmm. which are a little bit more white collar professionalized. So logistics is one of the few kind of blue collar sectors that are growing because we know Mm -hmm. manufacturing, unfortunately, is not growing, but logistics is. Um, So I think in terms of the left being rooted also in, in that part of you know, the working class is also mm-hmm. important, but, yeah. but you do, yeah, you make a good point about, I mean, there's so much that could be called logistics. I mean, that's why I think, you know, focusing on certain things like, like UPS, that's like just a major hub, Amazon, but at least UPS is already unionized. Um, they're going to have a contract expiring mm-hmm. in 2023, which we should all watch out for. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I think focusing in certain areas like that kind of makes sense. All right. Well, again, if you have any follow-up questions for Labor Paul uh, related to logistics or otherwise, feel free to pop them in the chat or in the comments or hit up Paul on Twitter. And and I'm sorry for going best. after Jimmy Carter. You know, <laughs> feel bad. Yeah, but... any defenses of Jimmy, Jimmy Carter, uh, definitely. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we'll find many of those. Yeah. Um, All right. Well, I think on that note, uh, we will call it a night. uh, But uh, thank you, everyone, for watching, and we'll see you next week.